Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to True Restoration. Here is your host. Today, we are up to chapter nine in the textbook that is Tradition and the Church by Monsignor George Aegis. This is a very long chapter, so we will split this through two shows. And Father, we can start off with the headline on page 165, The Solemn Judgment of the Church is an Infallible Truth of Divine Tradition. Yes, actually, this, uh, this chapter is, is very good, especially for, uh, of course, uh, today, uh, for Catholics, of course, today. Um, but I, even before we get to that little headline, the, actually, mm-hmm. the introduction, there are a couple points in the introduction, actually, that I think are, are really good that I just like to, how, what Monsignor writes, I just read real briefly, mm-hmm. is that really the first line, <laughs> first line of the introduction of this chapter, chapter nine, you know, he says, it is a matter of the greatest importance for a Catholic not only to know the fundamental articles of the Catholic religion, but also to render a good account of that knowledge. And, you know, that's something, too, for us today as, as traditional Catholics, is that, uh, you know, we have to know our faith to be able then to uh, explain it to uh, those maybe who are confused or those who are, um, you know, uh, not knowing exactly what's going on, but uh, to be able to throw out those seeds of, of uh, conversion for them. And then, actually, the Monsignor writes, too, in that same introduction, um, he writes and reminds us, reminds Catholics, and again, this is good for us to remind ourselves, too. He says that the soul of the church is there in its fullness. Uh, The waters which flow from the fountain of life are still pure and refreshing. Were we to admit that those waters were contaminated in the first, second, or third centuries or today, uh, it would be just as well to assert that Christ founded his church not on the rock, but on the sand of human frailty. And, you know, he's reminding us, and this is, of course, a dogma of our faith, is that, you know, the church is perfect, is that she, uh, she which really, you know, blows apart the whole stance like of some, you know, like uh, the recognized resist crowd, etc. It just blows that apart, mm-hmm. is that the church cannot give air, it cannot give it is still the pure bride. It is still uh, there in its fullness. And it also blows apart, of course, the ecumenism of today of the false church of Vatican II, you know, saying that somehow we can arrive at the true, better truth or something of that nature. So it's just a good reminder, I think, for us as Catholics to remind ourselves that, you know, you may, we may see the, the false uh, church uh, and, purport, and the destruction that it's causing in the mind of the world, but to remind yourself that the church is alive and well. It is It is mm. uh, certainly small, um, but it is perfect. It, it will last to the end of time. And it's it's uh, what a great consolation that is for us, uh, for our peace of soul, uh, as we have to deal with the destruction we see around us. Um, but, you know, the church is the one. It is always the same. Uh, you know, her heart, as St. Monsignor says, too, it beats in unison with all generations. And so there's no change of faith. There's no substantial alterations in anything, uh, nothing in her, uh, that has changed. And so, um, you know, that is something um, to to uh, uh, rely upon and to uh, keep us, you know, who uh, know the su- truth and see the truth uh, in, our, in that piece of soul. And so Monsignor actually sets up for to begin talking about the solemn judgment of the church, uh, um, but he sets up in the introduction just right there the the two definitions of of 
the, of solemn judgment and also her ordinary or universal teaching. And he says, well, he, he quotes first from Vatican I, um, when Vatican I says, By divine and Catholic faith, all those things must believe which are contained in the written or delivered word of God and which are proposed by the Church through her solemn judgment or ordinary and universal teaching as divinely revealed. Mm. But again, that, that also goes to, you know, there are some um, who fall into like the heresy of phenism and things in that nature who just say, well, just her solemn judgments. No, but Vatican I specifically says, you know, of course, her solemn judgments or ordinary and universal teaching. So solemn judgments uh, is Monsignor defines, of course, for us. He says, besides the canon of the scriptures, belonging the dogmatic definitions of the general councils and of the Roman pontiffs, as well as the definitions of particular councils solemnly approved by the Holy See, the professions of faith emitted by the church and imposed upon the faithful, uh, and the most ancient symbols or creeds, mm -hmm. he says. Mm -hmm. And then the ordinary and universal teaching, uh, he says, to her ordinary or universal teaching belong the liturgies, church history, the acts of the martyrs, uh, the monuments of Christian art, the consents of the faithful and of her theological schools, and the writings of the fathers. And so Monsignor, he does, puts forth uh, that those two wonderful definitions to remind, you know, that uh, uh, we, uh, what the church proposes for us, uh, of course, to be, to be believed either through scripture or tradition and, and all its aspects, it must be believed. There is no picking and choosing. There is no, you know, saying, well, you know, because of course we all hear the arguments today that things like, well, you know, the, the, uh, the mass that's not, uh, you know, it can be changed substantially. It's okay. Or the, uh, Things like even on the other end, uh, like, oh, well, and um, canonizations, you know, they're not infallible. Hmm. Trying to explain, you know, the reason why Vatican II is doing what it does to say, you know, that kind of thing. But that, again, this uh, in your basic catechism, um, even you just read, even uh, said uh, the the councils from uh, Vatican I and what it says is that that blows that all apart, um, is that. You know, we have to remind ourselves to get back and to remind to the basics here of, of to hold to the fast to what has always been taught, and and not to kind of use an excuse as maybe the times of today or the confusion sometimes of today to just say, well, just to pick and choose. Um, so, Monsignor, in the first chapter, then for the the solemn judgments of the Church, um, is an infallible proof of tradition and. You know, and again, Monsignor rehashes again and says that the the members of the church are called on not only to believe the teaching they receive, but also to express that belief. Mm -hmm. In other words, you know, it's one thing to say in your mind, uh, "Yeah, I believe," but uh, you know, then to to do something different about it um, or do something totally contrary to it. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes uh, the church to help us. Um, when the church is, especially in times of of danger, of of times of heresies, or times of of circumstances where the church is under fire, uh, and the nature of heresy is that the church has, uh, from time to time, uh, warned her faithful, her children, as the good mother that she is, um, to safeguard their faith through all that danger. Um, either again, as Monsignor says, either by her infallible declarations or her public profession of the truth or her solemn proclamations. And so 
you know, all these, uh, you know, may be called in that respect, then solemn proclamations of the church. And so again, these, all these belong, these judgments belong all to all dogmatic definitions declared and proclaimed by the Roman pontiff as head of the church or by general councils approved by the Holy See. Um, and again, the, um, I guess you can say the, the, most uh, easiest to see for just the normal Catholic um, or the uh, maybe sometimes even the most simple of simplest of Catholic is that the easiest to see is in the, is in the church in her professions of faith. Um, you know, like the apostles creed mm -hmm. um, they are within the realm of that special jurisdiction of the church. And so, you know, the, the professions of faith, they, they manifest again, what the church believes and practices at the time of their mission, and they are a, then, as Monsignor says, a fuller exposition of some articles of the faith. So, you know, your church at certain times have had uh, different articles uh, or different uh, creeds in a certain sense, you can say, coming out more extensive, like uh, the Apostles' Creed is a little bit different than the Nicene Creed, not in substance, but uh, a little more emphasis on certain things. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but this is an example of the, what everybody, every, everyday Catholic knows is that, you know, we all had to memorize the Apostles' Creed. Um, I mean, mm. but if you take the Apostles' Creed apart, each little, uh, each sentence or each uh, really word, but each really sentence is an article of faith and it explains the Catholic faith in its fullness. And, you know, I often use the, the when especially for converts uh, coming in from Protestantism, you know, when I when I catechize them and uh, getting them prepared to be accepted in the church, you know, this is what we often will do is we'll take that, uh, of course, the Apostles' Creed and, and go, you know, section by section and explain exactly what the church, of course, is teaching us uh, in, in this. And so, you know, you have, you have, uh, and Monsignor makes a, a, an account or a mention too of, you know, he says one of the most famous professions of faith are the, the Tridentine profession, you know, the what is what uh, because it was summarized as the Council of Trent uh, because of the great you know heresies that they had to do with Protestantism at that time and it ends um, you know in regards it was prescribed he says under Pius IV in 1564 and it ends with these words and actually these are I, these are beautiful words by the Church uh, it says in the same manner. All the other things which have been delivered, defined, and declared by the sacred canons and ecumenical councils, without doubt, I accept and profess. And so you see, you know, you see that in that line is when people say that line, uh, when we pray that line uh, in regards to their profession of faith, is they are saying that I accept everything the church has ever taught, because you know that the church can never teach anything wrong can never teach anything that is uh, um, uh, given to us for the harm of the souls of the faithful. And so you accept it all. Um, and, you know, again, that's often very consoling for us, uh, especially in today's times as well, but in times of any persecution, because if you think about it, um, you can imagine what the Catholics were thinking about um, in the time of the Protestant revolt. Um, of how they were seeing, much like we see today, of how everyone is just promoting all sorts of beliefs that are horrible and terrible, and uh, people falling away from the faith, their families being ripped apart mm. by following these terrible things. You know, aren't we living the same thing in in regard? But yet, 
what did those Catholics do? They relied on their profession of faith. They said, no, this is the truth. This is the rock. Uh, and so what a consoling way to, for us, especially today, to keep ever that uh, in mind. Mm, it's very different. Um, we have to believe what the church teaches, but a lot of people believe what is true to them, as they say. Right. Yes. We have to believe what the church has taught, but also, too, of what the church, how the church interpret, interprets her own belief as well and teaches us that. Because what you'll find sometimes today, people will go and say or point to something, say, like from the Council of Florence and say, see, this is what the church says about this. This is what is strictly believed. But they don't understand is that you have to look to, um, you know, the popes and the, to the theologians and to maybe even another council after that or something in that mm -hmm. regards to explain further what the church means. It doesn't mean it's changing, but it just means that there's a, we submit ourselves not only to what the church teaches, but how the church teaches it as well. And so, you know, it takes a look, it, it does take a, um, a, a load off our shoulders when we do that. I mean, we have the we have the uh, responsibility, of course, to know it and to, as, as Monsignor puts, we have to know our faith and be able to then elicit it and and be able to live it as well to prove it that we know this or to to understand this. But we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't mm -hmm. have to sit there and trying to figure out theological, you know, find minute points of the theology, etc., and to use our own private interpretation like uh, Protestants do. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have to do that. Um, you know, we were, this is where we rely upon the authority of God, the authority of, the, of his church and authority of his ministers in union with uh, our Lord to be able to help provide us with that. And that's one of the great things about the Catholic Church that other religions do not have, especially like Protestantism, where a heap of Protestants just cannot agree on some very important articles, very important matters. Right. Yeah. Protestants, uh, you know, it's interesting how Protestants, of course, uh, they all reject, of course, the Pope. Um, and anything in the papacy in that regard. Uh, but really, in reality, they are in praxis. Uh, they are their own pope. <laughs> yes. I mean, each one you have, you have diff different little popes, you know, in regards to all Protestants because they do everything. You know, it's my, I'm the final authority is ultimately what they're saying. Mm -hmm. On page 168, the headline reads, the symbol creed of the apostles is truly apostolic, not only in doctrine, but in origin. Yes, this uh, Monsignor in this uh, this uh, chapter, he does a very good job of putting together um, not only, of course, the theological understandings uh, of and of course of faith and and um, scripture and tradition and faith, what we need to believe, but he also does give the uh, combined with that the the, the history of things, uh, mm -hmm. you know, as how things. Um, are rooted in history. It's not like as, uh, you know, things are just made up at a certain time. Say, oh, we just this is what we better do, you know. And uh, no, there's there's a root to it. There's a a a a a history to it. And so, you know, these creeds, they're always a co collection um, of what must be believed. Um, that's very true. And then it's also, of course, uh, it's a distinction, a demarcation uh, away from say, heres er, heretics, or, you know, as Monsignor puts it, distinguished from infidels, uh, you know, a mark of that pack which we enter into God with baptism. And so they're, they're a brief way for us to, um, um, to believe the fundamental beliefs, uh, to understand them, of the Catholic faith. And, you know, Monsignor writes, you know, there are three in number that are approved 
by the church. <clears throat> the three ones, of course, that we have uh, that are the, the ones that the church has approved, and they are the, the Apostles' Creed, uh, you know, the symbol of the Apostles, the Nicene Creed, um, or Constantinopolitan Creed, and the symbol or the creed of St. Athanasius. And so uh, these are, as Monsignor says, they are uh, the creeds that Catholics uh, for centuries have put to memory. And of course, we all, of course, the Nicene Creed, of course, we, we say at Mass. Uh, the Apostles' Creed, of course, we all learned in our catechism. And then um, some maybe not be too familiar necessarily with the St. Athanasius uh, Creed, but uh, certainly that's always a good one. And the catechisms, uh, of course, usually have that as well. But, you know, we, we pray that, of course, uh, in, in our offices uh, as priests and on the office, uh, you know, occasionally uh, in that regard. But the Apostles' Creed, of course, is the, probably the most widely known, I would think. Um, mm. And the reason why it's called, as Monsignor points out, the Apostles' Creed is because um, it is truly apostolic. In other words, uh, it's true, not only of the doctrine it contains, but of its origin. In other words, um, it really has its root in the Apostles' Um, mm. You know, that is, uh, you know, this is where the proper um, understanding of church history comes into uh, effect. And, um, you know, one thing that you, you often find, like with Vatican II, etc., is that, uh, you know, there's a emphasis on, um, you know, going back to scriptures and trying to figure things out, uh, or who wrote them, what the circumstances mm -hmm. are, mm -hmm. not with the, not with, not, not with the fact of, you know, really understanding that, yes, this is true. And, and, you know, maybe for better understanding of that, but really to disprove, uh, the fact that say the apostles wrote this, or I'll give you an example. When we were taught in seminary in Vatican II, that, uh, the Gospel of St. John was not written by him. It was just written by later by some of his Johannine jo um, followers. Mm. Well, that goes, you know, that goes uh, right against what the church has always taught, mm -hmm. that no, it was St. John who penned this, uh, as well as, of course, the book of the Apocalypse. And so these are the things that, but when you understand church history in the right way and study it, it's, it, it, you see that things are, ancient in that regard. They are rooted as they are said. And so the Apostles' Creed are rooted in the Apostles. And so uh, Monsignor quotes the golden rule of St. Augustine, which I thought is very good. Uh, St. Augustine says that uh, whatever comes down to us from the ancients and does not emanate from the councils or from the church is of apostolic origin. And so, you know, we know um, that, uh, that our Lord had... Um, had ordained and had uh, given the uh, duty to the uh, apostles uh, to before he ascended into to heaven to teach and to baptize. And of course, he says, "Go ye into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth he that believeth not shall be condemned." And so, Monsignor makes a very uh, very very good, but very interesting, even for uh, meditation as well. Of, he kind of picks that apart a little bit. And he says, notice first of all the connections uh, between the belief in the gospel and the reception of baptism. In other words, one had to believe before he could receive baptism. And the apostles then were sent uh, into the world, not to convert children, but in an adults, to adult generation. And so, and again, 
what had one to believe? And and again, Monsignor says, just what the words of baptism mean and imply, whatever concerns the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. In other words, the mystery of the Blessed Trinity. Um, you know, because at the time, you know, in the time of the apostles, there was a monotheistic belief in, and of course, Judaism was based in monotheism. But our Lord reminded and said, yes, that was good for that time, but I'm revealing to you now that God is one God, three persons. It is the Holy Trinity. And mm. so many could not grasp that. Mm -hmm. uh, so many rejected that. Even paganism, of course, rejected that. Yep. Um, so the Apostles' Creed was 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 the fundamental truth that was, that it re revolved around was again teaching uh, uh, the people the mystery of the most blessed Trinity, uh, the belief in one God and three divine persons, and you know that was the the least that was the very least that could be expected of those who wished to enter into the church uh, in the name of the of the three divine persons. Of course, as that's how we baptize and I, you know baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so that is. That is the, the the creed of the apostles. The apostles' creed then is therefore it's it's a fuller exposition of that mystery of the Holy Trinity. And again, then as the church went on, uh, as the course of the centuries, as Monsignor writes as well, um, the church, like in the Council of Nicaea, made new additions to the apostolic creed to offset other innovations, other heresies that are contrary to the faith at the time. But it's all still rooted in that very fundamental belief of the Holy Trinity. And you know, it is very true that. Um, even now, even to this very day, if you have someone say uh, who's on their deathbed um, that uh, you know and desires to see a priest and never, you know, never had any religion before, what have you, or um, you know, and desires to see a priest to to under, uh, obviously you're not going to have a long catechetical you know time to teach that person in regards to the faith, and so if the person is going to die and needs to be baptized and wishes to be baptized as a Catholic, understands it, you. You have to, you know, just basic things you have, they have to know that there is a God that he uh, judges, uh, he rewards the good and judges the wicked. Mm -hmm. He, um, that there is, that Jesus Christ, of course, is the son of God, is the savior of the world. Um, and then, of course, then in the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. And so, you know, those are the basic kind of things that you have to be able to then baptize uh, what our Lord uh, had told us to do. And so the church provides for us that, that simple synopsis, so to speak. Uh, of the faith, again, beginning with the Apostles' Creed for the for the normal faithful, uh, simple faithful, so to speak, in, in regards to uh, the faith. And so, you know, the Apostles then exacted that belief in the Holy Trinity when they taught it by, by word of mouth, of course. Um, but, you know, then be, it became part of, in a sense, the oral tradition, but it was still part of the church. It was still protected by, uh, of course, by uh, by well, the keys of Peter, as Saint as Monsignor says, and so the question has come up, uh, as, you know, is whether it really originated originally comes down to us from the apostles themselves, and Monsignor says very point blankly says, you know, there should be very little doubt on this point. Um, it's you know th they should know that the uh, the the uh, that this is of apostolic origin. This is of the apostles. Uh, you know, it comes from that time and it comes from them, uh, given to them from Christ himself. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the, the creed of course, uh, then was, was beginning to be learned by heart 
even in the time, of course, by the apostles, by those Catholics who are willing to to be uh, um, part of the church. And so it really was not necessarily written down as of yet, per se, in the, in the extent, of course, that we have now. But there was a reason for that. And that the reason was that, of course, was that the knowledge of the most intimate mysteries of Christianity, which, of course, the Trinity is one of the most intimate knowledges, it was always kept uh, secret from or kept hidden from the heathen and the Jew, um, as well as those who from time to time underwent in, uh, for, for uh, those persecutors of the church. Because it's mm -hmm. almost like, um, why would you give something of such importance to someone who is going to defame it and, and to, uh, to blaspheme it uh, when you can, you know, in a sense, hold it? So it became, again... That was also reserved, kind of a reserved silence, so to speak, it was applied to like the sacraments as well. And, you know, we still even at times in the church had that time, you know, those who were um, catechumens in that regards, like when the mass begins, uh, is that they will leave after the gospel and before the great mysteries of then the uh, consecration and, and, and comes to, to head. And so it was to protect uh, the most intimate of of articles of our faith from being um, again blasphemed or or perverted in that regards uh, or given to mockery by uh, infidels. Um, so you know that uh, uh, there is evidence uh, and always has been uh, that the Apostolic Creed, uh, Apostles Creed, is found in the first years of Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, we find it you know spread then throughout that all of Christendom as time. Uh, went on. And so it is very ancient and very, uh, you know, the beginnings uh, of, of that, of writing, um, uh, of, of, of the faith being written down uh, for instruction for the faithful. Mm, well, on uh, page 173, it says that, Father, it says, it is not true that no evident trace of the Apostles' Creed is found in the first years of Christianity, as you were saying, and it continues, before the middle of the second century, we find in Rome a creed which is substantially identical with the creed we recite. Right, every day. I mean, so it is. What a, again, you know, these are the things too. You know, we of course faith is in the intellect. We know understand that, but yet, you know, we can understand that that when we say the Apostles' Creed every day, just imagine two thousand years ago, some Catholic in the in the you know in the Middle East there. Um, reciting the same thing, mm. had it said recited the same thing with the same faith that we have, and so, you know, there's a connection there. Of course, uh, there's a, the mystical body of Christ, of course, that is there uh, for us to. Uh, and again, these are things that we as Catholics can remind ourselves of because uh, it, you know, it helps us in these times when we think we're more alone than we really are, but yet, you know, we are standing shoulder to shoulder with every faithful Catholic that has been since the beginning of the church mm. um, and, and and not even not even just not with the great with the great saints of course which we have yes of course but sometimes we have a tendency to you know um we are we see we deem our, ourselves inferior to the saints and in, in a certain sense I, I know i am i mean you can certainly can mm. remind ourselves yes i mean but just with the say everyday normal catholics you know the uh, the the ones who are struggling to make ends meet for their family, mm -hmm. you know, in regards to whatever century it may be in, and and struggling to to live and to to be good faithful Catholics, you know, they are praying the same way we pray now. 
Um, so we have a, a grander connection with all uh, in that in our mystical body of Christ. Mm, that's quite encouraging. On page 176, the headline reads, The Nicene, Constantinopolitan, and Athanasian symbols, being the creeds, are a vindication of the mystery of the most blessed trinity. Yes, Monsignor again goes uh, again into uh, a little bit of the history uh, of things, and it's a, another good chapter to continue to to understand that. And he writes, you know, the great persecutions which the church faced in her first uh, few centuries, the first three centuries, you know, they he writes, you know, they had one good effect. He says, they confirm the divinity of the church. Hell and heresy had gone their limit to uproot from the earth, the tree which Christ and the apostles had planted and sprinkled with their blood. And, you know, though, again, I'm kind of, I guess, harping on a, the same point in a certain sense, but it's a good to, to remind yourself that in the gravest of persecutions, even to the point where um, the church seemed to be extinguished, uh, it survived and still survives, mm. and eventually, of course, thrived after a while, but yet had to go through that persecution. And it, that is a sign that it is of divine origin, because if you look back into the great travesties the church had to face, whether it be heresies, whether it be uh, persecutions, whatever it may be, on a, nor on a human level, uh, if any other, say, organization would have had to face those things, it would have been destroyed. Mm. It would have, there would be no, there would be no remnant left of it. Uh, even, you know, to the great persecutions of the Roman emperors in that regards, you know, they, you know, they, like the Holy Land in that they leveled everything and, or they, they piled all things on it. They built their own temples on top of things. But after a while, uh, that was to our benefit because when the persecutions ended, uh, then the Catholics knew where the great shrines were, where our Lord's tomb was and such, because of the sheer fact that these pagans had built their own on top of it to try to uh, wipe out the faith. Mm -hmm. So it was like a beacon, say, oh, no, it's under here. Don't worry, it's under here. So these are things of, of divine origin that uh, remind us of the church, that the church is never going to die until the end of the world. Um, you know, no matter what, how much impious men and... Uh, you know, try to erase it in the mind of the world, uh, where, you know, Bergoglio comes to mind, of course, mm. in that mm. regards, and all these others, apostates, you know, how much they try to uh, erase any sort of Catholicism in the world, uh, they, they will never uproot our Lord, mm -hmm. who is the head of the church. They will never destroy the church. Um, you know, it's just in that regards. And so Monsignor makes that you know, good point, uh, that that even in persecutions and terrible times, there's always some good that comes from it, some good effect. And that was, again, it confirms the divinity of the church. Um, and so he goes through some of the some of the history uh, of some things, and he writes about the early part of the fourth century in regards to the Arian heresy. Um, you know, he says civilization from being pagan, uh, you know, became Christian, but it was with uh, um, Julian the Apostate, of course, that the, the church had to face paganism, a resurgence of paganism, um, the serpent of heresy. I love that, how Monsignor writes that, serpent mm -hmm. of heresy, yep. um, yeah. and, and threatened the very life of the church. And But with the help of God, she came out triumphantly in both, uh, both in the confluence against, say, paganism and against her heresy. Um, and so heresy, of course, the one that we can point to a lot is is Arianism and the 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 truly demonic and diabolical attempt 
to rob our Lord of his divinity, which again, by the way, we see in the modernists. I mean, it is truly that, mm, uh, you yes. know, nothing is, nothing is new, nothing is new under the sun. But, uh, you know, this new doctrine, as Monsignor writes, of Arianism, he says, and I'm just going to read this because he says it's poignantly written. It says, the new doctrine, like a prairie fire, soon spread out to the four corners of the empire, and it conquered many nations before it could be successively coped with. And St. Jerome, and I quote this often, actually, St. Jerome says, you know, the whole world groaned and marveled to find itself Arian. Mm-hmm. So you know, it seemed like it, it seemed like the world, uh, the church was coming to an end. It seemed like there was really almost no earthly or no no natural hope to have. But yet, it was with that that God helped His church. And you know, you have He raised up, of course, uh, opposite Arius. He raised up, of course, Athanasius. And so, but if you look at Saint Athanasius, you see his. He had quite a, um, as Monsignor writes, he had a stormy career of his long life, but it rendered him the, one of the greatest champions of militant Catholicism the church has ever known. You know, and that's something that, too, again, these little points we can have in this book, which was, you know, written so many years ago, but can very apply to our times today, because you can see that even in the life of St. Athanasius, and you read, of course, his, his, his life and understand you know how he was uh, uh, many times uh, exiled from his own diocese and and uh, persecuted by the emperor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And all the terrible trials he had to go through is, um, you know, it was messy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Things were messy in that regards, and uh, it was. But he kept fighting. He kept doing, putting, doing all. You know, being faithful to the church, and mm-hmm. even even how messy it may be, it didn't look like you know things were going very well. But yet he still persevered, and that's what we do today and so it was finally then that the dogma then of the of our lord's divinity finally triumphed um but with all that there always is problems there's always factions that come out you know people who still cling to heresy or people who have mm-hmm. and so yeah. you know the the church the church had to um you know then have then the great assembly of the council of nicaea um as as uh, in 325 and I liked how Monsignor writes this um, of how amongst those who were there, of course, you had St. Athanasius, of course, Athanasius. I mean, he was a deacon at that time. Um, But Arius was there as well, of course, the heretic. Um, And then, you know, all all the bishops who were there, save two, as Monsignor says, declared and defined that our Lord, uh, the Son of God, is consubstantial or coessential with the Father of the same substance. And, of course, Arius refused to submit. He was exiled, and his writings were burned. But like heresy, any kind of heresies or heretics, they're like cockroaches. Uh, they never go away. Right. You know, right. They, they they just hide for a little while until times get better, and then they come back out. And you don't see them in, you know, in that regards. And so that peace, which was brought about by the Church of the Council, um, it didn't last very long. And so, again, you have politics coming into play. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, the emperors being being perverted uh, to recall then Arius from exile and to then try to begin to put him back and try to then spread that heresy. Um, but it was, uh, Monsignor writes uh, this uh, paragraph, this short little paragraph here, which I'll read. He says, it is enough here to observe that when the church, on account of certain circumstances, 
is obliged to rely on earthly princes, events have shown that their intervention has, as a general rule, done more harm than good to the church. The interference of Constantine and of, of many of his successors many times forced Athanasius and many other Orthodox bishops to leave their sees and go into exile to the detriment of Christianity. The popes of the time, Sylvester, Julius, and Liberius, did all they could do to help the defenders of orthodoxy, but being far away from the seat of the controversy and the selection of bishops being in those days left to secular princes and to the people, they could scarcely call to task the great catechumen Constantine or his powerful successors. So, you know, the church is left then to, of course, to do all she can, but has to suffer sometimes the consequences mm. of certain things. And and I read that paragraph too because I know there's a an effort today uh, to by the recognized visitors or, or what have you to point out, try to get people to think that like Pope Liberius, uh, you know, he was a he was he was a heretic. He was a heretic, but he still remained the Pope. Um, you know, and they'll they'll point to something like that to try to pervert the fact that no that, that of the truth that no, there has never been a heretic Pope. Mm-hmm. Um, in that regards, uh, that's an that's an oxymoron. I mean, you can't be a heretic and a pope. That they're much exclusive in that regards. Yes, yes. So, but at the same time, you know, you you see that at times in the, her church in the church's history, it can be quite messy at times. You know, there's a you know politics involved. There's different things involved, but yet she still is uh, uh, always within the bark uh, of Saint Peter. She still is. You know, in that regards, and and still has to suffer sometimes injustices and difficulties. You know, Saint Athanasius being forced out of his you know diocese um, several times, being mm-hmm. people sent out to kill him, to kill him, hmm. um, and you know that sort of thing. So you have all this play that you have, uh, but what gets you through it, of course, is that rock of the faith that is written that we that we rely upon. I mean, that is without change, no matter what may come, hmm. um, and. And so you have, you know, this uh, Monsignor goes to uh, to to go back to some of these um, um, councils to say, you know, the origins of some of these uh, creeds, or these some of, of these to at times uh, combat whatever heresy may have popped up at the moment, um, you know, because heresy is, uh, like I said, is like a cockroaches, you know, they though. It it pops up for a while, becomes strong, and then you shine a light on it to go scatters, uh, and then it just hides though until maybe the next moment when it can pop itself up again. So you'll find heresies popping up throughout the centuries and councils in other church to combat them, mm-hmm. um, to remind. And this is where you have the origins of of a lot of these uh, creeds, of course, uh, that are, are written uh, from these to combat these heresies. Um, so you know you have. Things again, like uh, the addition of of uh, like the filioque, um, you know, proceeding from the sun as well, processionals from the sun. You know, there's a there, and you can read about this on on page uh, you know 180, 181 in regards to how that come about. It was always believed, but it was just more emphasized because of the uh, the uh, maybe things that were being denied or un- misunderstood. Um, but again, you see from that the addition of the Fidioque, you have, you know, you have some of the, uh, um, as as uh, Monsignor writes on 181, he says, Greek bishops found in the doctrine of the Fidioque, 
too good an excuse for throwing off all dependence on Rome head of the universal church, which they jealously viewed as their rival. So they preferred to be ruled by the turban of the Turk than by the tiara of the successors of St. Peter. Hmm. And so sometimes you have the, uh, um, the rejection of creeds, rejections of, of the church's teaching, uh, not necessarily always out of uh, um, a denial of the teaching itself, but sometimes for political reasons. Um, you know, sometimes like, you know, the Greek bishops, they decided, you know, they wanted a little bit more power and didn't want to be subject to Rome. So they were looking for any excuse really to say, you know what, we, we don't, you know, it's a smokescreen basically is what they often will use. And so, but again, it's all formulated around, you know, those basic creeds that we have. And as Monsignor writes too of the Creed of St. Athanasius, it says, this creed is a clear exposition of the doctrine of the Trinity and of the incarnation, which was being attacked as well at the time. So it was framed in its present shape to manifest unmistakably the Trinity of the persons in God and the twofold nature in the one divine person of Jesus Christ. So you have the history that you see these creeds are coming from. It's the same belief. There's nothing new, of course. It's mm -hmm. just some things maybe are more emphasized than other others. But you remind yourself too is you know when I pray the Nicene Creed or when I pray the Saint Athanasius Creed. Uh, remind yourself that, you know, this is because of the, her the combating of the heresies at that time, that, the, you know, these Catholics of so many centuries ago uh, prayed this and, and, and professed this faith uh, to demarcate themselves from the pagans around them and from the, from the heretics around them. And, you know, so there's a, um, you know, there's a, 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 a wonder again there that you have, uh, of of looking at yes what the church teaches but you know sometimes in as well as her history of why this was so and, and uh, not to deny these things not to like to deny the authorship of say the Athanasius Creed to Saint Athanasius but to say how wonderful it is that the church had raised up uh, these holy saints or um, had, uh, had put in at our Lord had made. Um, the church as she is, as the Pope being the head, as the uh, the marks then of infallibility in regards to teaching of the faith, to keep us safe, even in the midst of the crashing waters of heresies around us. Yes, uh, when you were saying, Father, about how the church has uh, have to overcome, combat heresies, and they keep popping up, the Catholic Church can put them down, but they will keep popping up. It reminds me of uh, the battle we have with our souls, where... Due to original sin, we have these inclinations and we can combat them, overcome them. But as long as we're alive, they will keep coming up and we have to keep combating them. That's right. I mean, it is, uh, um, that's right. Very, very clear. But it's not, again, I always try to, to remind people that, well, like I said before, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but we also don't have to reinvent new weapons mm. to combat, whether it be just private, you know, just, just a normal uh, normal, I mean, regular, I should say, you know, everyday temptations that we have, you know, we don't have to do, try to figure things out and say, well, how, we, we already have the weapons. I like to say we, we have every arrow that we need in our own quiver given to us by Almighty God, given to us by Holy Mother Church. Uh, all we have to do is make sure that we just pull that arrow out and, you know, begin to fire it in our bow. Um, that's our part, but yet it's, everything has been provided. Every weapon we need has, is at our fingertips. We just have to make use of them. I think that's a good place to end this episode, Father. 
as we close out this episode, we have covered the first half of chapter nine of the textbook, Tradition and the Church by Monsignor George Aegis. And I want to thank Father Oswald for your time in being with us on this episode. 